Well, it is Christmas season. We love it around here. We love the Christmas season. You see all the decorations that are out. You guys, after the fire last year, we lost as a church every single Christmas decoration we had. We lost it all because the ash and the soot was in here and, and it just it, it got on all the trees. So for the eight years before of collecting trees from all of you guys that said, I don't like this one, I'm going to give a different tree. I mean, we had like 30 or 40 trees in here. We lost them all. But now you see a bunch of trees in there. Walmart donated all of their display trees for us this year. They, we got like 30 donated trees this year. It's crazy. You know where we were at financially. We couldn't afford all that stuff. But man, we got all new trees out there. And, and it's just God continuing to, uh, to meet us in that. And it's, but it's, but it's, we love it. We love the Christmas season. We love everything about the Christmas season. We love it that we get to spend some time in the, in the narrative of Jesus' birth in the Christmas season. Isn't it amazing that no matter how many times you hear it, some of you guys maybe haven't heard it ever before, but for some, you've heard it for 60 years. I mean, I'm 53. I've heard it for 50-some years. I mean, I, I was a Catholic growing up, so mom and dad were telling me that story when I was like six months old. And so, so, we, so you hear that story, but every time you hear it, you just love it. You hear about the, the manger and the, no room in the inn and, and the angels singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on whom his favor rests. We hear all that stuff and you, you, you lean into the story. There's something about it. It's, the, it's the, uh, the, the, the extraordinary meeting the ordinary and there's something beautiful about that. I love it that... In one place, Mary and Joseph are, are that Mary's having this baby that's going to be the, the son of God. And, and next door, a neighbor might not know anything about it. And they might not know for 30 some years anything about it. That's kind of the, that's the beauty of it. It's that simplicity and the complexity all at the same time. And, and, so, uh, and so we love spending time in that story. We're going to, over the next three or four weeks, we're going to be spending time in this story, okay? We're calling the series Hope Has a Name. Because we look at this time, especially we look around the world, man, so many people are just dying for hope. They just need it. You think about it just in this country, all the mass shootings that we have seen just even in this last month, including what happened down in Colorado Springs and how many people are dying for hope. They just need hope in this season. We're thinking about, we're thinking about even here locally and the one-year anniversary of the Marshall Fire and how many people are in, in need of hope. I mean, how many people were triggered by the 70-mile-an-hour winds that were happening and blowing against the, the decorations on the, on the, on the, on the house? And if you haven't got your decorations up, get them up. Come on, we, let's, let's light this place up this year. But think about how many people are in need of hope. They need a hope in your family. You need a hope in your, in your marriage. You need a hope with your children. You know, a need of hope if you're alone in this season. And what we're saying in this season is that hope has a name. And the name is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what God has done is he's given us hope because he has come to this earth through his son, Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time in that narrative of God coming to this earth, the wonder of that and the simplicity of that. We're going to spend some time in that uh, in the next few weeks. Father, we pray that you would bless the work and the, and the, um, and the words that are shared. God, we pray that, that as we look at this, even if it's something that somebody has heard a bunch of times, we pray that you would speak to us in, in new ways and, 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 that, and that we'd see it with the wonder that should be there. God, when we, when we start to check out and say, yeah, I've heard it before, 
remind us, you came into this world as a baby. And that's extraordinary. Meet us in that, Lord. And we pray that you would speak to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to look at different uh, people in the, in the, in the story and, and look at it from their perspective. We want to add some texture to maybe what you have heard over the years. So we're going to add some texture to that. And in the midst of it, we're going to get to even learn a little bit about what, who, what God is saying to us today about it. You know, sometimes you're going, well, okay, so that was a shepherd. Well, what's God, what is God saying to us today about that shepherd? Why would he have used that shepherd in the story? So we're going to look at some of those people over the next couple of weeks. The one we're looking at today is one that, that we don't know that much about. But, but, we're, but there's something we can really learn from it. We're going to look at Joseph today, okay? Now, Joseph, when you look at the nativity scene, when you, when you look back at it, Joseph is the one that you can't figure out which one's Joseph, you know? He's the one you're going, is he... Is, you know, even today, when I had Stuart uh, kind of get this ready for me, he had, the, he had the king in Joseph's place. See, we can't even tell. I'm going, Stuart, you just lived out what I'm talking about today. We don't even know who Joseph is. Joseph is this little guy. You know, he looks like Mary. He's got long hair. He looks like Mary, but he's sitting there with Mary. And so we don't even know who he is. And so you're going, and so what in the world can we get from him? Joseph's a weird character you think about. You know, Joseph is the dad of Jesus, but not Jesus' father. And so you go, so what, what's that mean? Does he really have anything that, that, we, would, that we, we could gain from it? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look back at some history, okay? And I want to give you some of that history, some of that background. And, and if you don't care one bit about that, will you hang with me anyway? <laughs> because learning from the history will actually help us to get something about in our life today. It's going to enrich the story, and it's also going to help us in what we're going to get today. And so, so hang with me as I'm going through some of that history. You might go, I don't care. And you might start getting on your phone and checking your fantasy lineup and making sure that person's in the lineup. You guys, if you do that, God is not going to bless your fantasy day. He's not. You're going to... That's the way he works. You don't pay attention in church, man. He, he punishes you. That's not true. That's not true. You can check your fantasy lineup, and I don't think it has any, God could care less. But anyway, pay attention, okay? Because the history actually has something to do with what we're going to talk about, okay? So let's look at some of the history of Joseph, all right? First, he was a carpenter. Okay, that word carpenter in Greek, because we look back at the Greek, because the New Testament is written in Greek, that word carpenter in Greek is tecton. He was a carpenter. He wasn't an architecton. That's, that's a carpenter that is, is at a higher level. Joseph wasn't an architecton. That's where we get the word architect. Okay, he wasn't that. Now, I'm not saying to all of you that are architects and, and contractors or builders that the architects are better, okay? So don't sit there and feel like you architects are at a higher level. That's just what was happening then, okay? So he's not an architecton. He's just a tecton. He's just a builder. He's, and he most probably was a stone builder, okay? He, wasn't, he didn't use as much wood as they would stone back then. So that's who Joseph was. And of course, Jesus ends up being a carpenter. And so Joseph taught Jesus how to do this, okay? That he was, Jesus was in, in a sense, Joseph's apprentice in teaching him how to do it, okay? G G uh, Joseph was in the line of David. That's really important looking back at Jewish history. See, the Jewish people, they were preparing for a savior to come. that was gonna save them what they thought was from Roman oppression, but they knew that that person was going to come from the line of David because in the Old Testament, 
There were these prophetic words, a prophetic voice from people that would say, it's, it's going to come from the line of David. So the Jewish people were ready for that. So when you look all the way back in Genesis, Abraham, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons, Judah, that's where the lion of Judah was going to come. That's Jesus. He's going to come from, the, the, from, from Judah and then ultimately leads to David, King David. And then from David, as you continue down that genealogy, you get down from David all the way to Jesus. Now, Joseph was a direct descendant of David. And so as God chooses Joseph and Mary to be the, the people that would raise this child, Joseph was in the line of David, and that was important to Jewish people waiting on the Savior, okay? So it's in the line of David. Now, Joseph is from Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem, moves to Nazareth. So when you hear Jesus of Nazareth, moves to Nazareth and comes back to Bethlehem because there's a census that has to be taken, and he comes back to Bethlehem. That's when, you know, when Mary and Joseph come back to Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn, and so they, they, they're in a barn. Really what probably happened is there was no room in the guest room, which is probably upstairs in this house because everyone had a guest room. There was no room in the guest room. And so they had to sleep downstairs and what was where they kept the animals. And that's why there was a manger down there. That's probably what happened is they were in that type of a, of a situation. Joseph probably had family members in Bethlehem. And, and, but because there was a census and all these guest rooms being taken, that's where they ended up was in this place where all the animals were kept. Okay? So he's from Bethlehem, which again is important in Jewish history. When you look back at Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, a guy named Micah, he says this, he says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, through you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, one of you will one of, uh, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So, so it's, it's being said, it's, it's going to come from Bethlehem. So if you pictured it right now for you, I mean, think about it. If, if some prophetic voice from hundreds and hundreds of years ago is saying that the Savior of the world that you're waiting for you for waiting for a Roman oppression is what you'd be thinking about, is going to come out of Louisville or Boulder or, or Superior, if you're, or, or Broomfield or wherever, if you're one of those people, you're going, wow, it's going to come from our hometown. And that's, so, so you know that Joseph was expected, but you never knew which generation that was going to come from. And he certainly didn't think it was going to come from his family, but you know, they were expecting something's going to come someday out of Bethlehem. That's going to change everything. Well, that's, that's what's about to happen. Okay. So that's a little bit of background on Joseph. Now let's get to the part about him being betrothed to Mary. Okay. So betrothal, when you look back at betrothed, that's, 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 kind of a combination today of engagement and marriage. It's a combination of those. It's not romantic. It's a contractual thing between two families. So it wasn't romantic. It's not like, it's not like when, when, you know, when I'm in, in Ensenada, Mexico on a mission trip and, and I've, I'm there with Jackie Sylvie and, and I'm ready to ask her to marry me and I go to a beach away from the rest of the, the, the team and, and, I, and I pull out this little plastic toy and, and from a 25 cent toy from a grocery store and she opens it up and the ring's inside and I get on my knee and I say, uh, quiero vivir con tu por siempre. See, there's all my great Spanish. Back then I got it more. I, I want to live with you always. That's what I came up with. I want to live with you always. Uh, 
And you know, it's not romantic like that was. I wanted to do it on a mission trip so God would bless it, you know. <laughs> and he did. 28 years later, I guess he did. So, uh, so, so I, it's not romantic. What happened at the time was very much two families that came together. And so here's Mary's family and here's Joseph's family and they come together. And when they become betrothed, they would actually write out a contract. They would take vows. And so in a lot of ways, they were looked at as married. They're married. The only th thing that they needed to wait on was to, to, to the, the consummation of that marriage. They had to have sex to become one. That, but that wasn't going to happen until after the wedding feast. The wedding feast was another year later. And so they had one year, and they called this the time of preparation. So in a lot of ways, in the public's eyes, they were married, and, but they had, to, they had to wait this year for them to be finally officially married, okay? And so in that time of preparation, that's when they would start to prepare life with each other. And this is really important for where we're going, okay? They had to prepare life with each other. Joseph had, to, Joseph had to learn a trade, and so he learned the, to, to be a carpenter. And so, so he had, he, that was the beginning of life together. Joseph had to build a home. They started to, to build a home together. That, that was, they couldn't live in that home yet, but they had to build a home together. And so he was doing that. And then they had to prepare for this wedding feast. You guys, the wedding feast was ridiculous. We look today at weddings and we say, gosh, they have gotten so out of hand. They're nothing compared to what the wedding feast was back in Jesus' time. See, I mean, I know it. I had two of my kids get married in the same year. My son got married, and then three months later, my daughter got married. And when my son got married, Emily, Jack's wife, her parents paid for it. I'm going, man, I love that tradition. I love that tradition of the bride's parents paying for it. It's so great. Until three months later when my daughter got married, and I'm going, what stupid tradition is this? Why can't, why can't Justice's parents pay for half of this thing? We, I mean, it's ridiculous today, and, you know, ice sculptures and $10,000 cakes and all the rest of the ridiculousness of weddings today. You guys, back then, everyone was invited Everyone, everyone in the community, all their family members, communities over from that community, everyone looked forward to the wedding feast. Jackie and I invited 300 college students to our wedding because we were in the middle of doing college ministry. How stupid were we and how, how ungrateful we were to Jackie's parents that paid 30 bucks a head for those, those students that we don't even know their names today. You know, back then, everyone came. It took them a year to get ready for the feast because they don't have caters and, and venues. They had to grow all the food for, for what was going to be for the wedding feast. It took them the year to do that. They had to build a venue. It took them a year to do that. So all of that is, is building up to this seven-day wedding feast where the day of the groom would go to the bride, give the bride's parents a dowry, and then take that bride and walk back to their place where the feast was going to be at. All the people joined them as they all walked together to the feast. And for seven days, people would celebrate. They would consummate their marriage, and now they'd be fully married. In the middle of all of that, Mary comes to Joseph and says, Hey, Joe, I'm pregnant. And it's through the Holy Spirit. You can picture Joseph. Come on. He's human, you guys. You're what? And you're going to blame it on God? 
You guys, you know how many times in college ministry I kept telling our students, quit breaking up with your, other, with the, with your boyfriend or girlfriend and blaming it on God? God told me to break up with you. You just don't like them anymore. But that, that's the, what's what they would say. Mary pulled that. God, God impregnated me. And so I didn't, I didn't sleep with anybody else. Joseph now is faced with what do I do? Mary, we've been preparing life together. I've been building this house. I've been learning this trade. We've been growing stuff for the wedding feast. And now you're telling me this happened? He knew what he had to do. Listen to what it says in scripture. Listen to this. It says this. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, okay? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph had two options at this point. He could have gone with directly what it directly says in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. If, if you're caught in adultery, you're to be stoned to death. He could have done exactly what Scripture told him to do and make it very public. So what he could have done is, if he makes it public, she goes on trial, she's found guilty, and then she's stoned to death, and so is the unborn child. He could have done that. Now, you would look at it and say, why would anybody do that that's so uncaring? Think about his reputation. If he chooses not to do that, then people either conclude, and you know, everybody knows. All these people in the community know. And if he chooses not to do that, they're either concluding, you're the one that did this, you slept with her when you shouldn't have, and so now he's to blame, or you don't care that somebody else did this. And so he's got, it's his whole reputation. He's got to save face. And so he could easily just say, I'm going to follow even what the law said in the Old Testament. I'm going to follow that and let's just take care of this so that I can move on. He could have done that. But instead it says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. That's the second option. The second, the second option was, was Mary is, is uh, he, he knows I'm not going to um, kill that unborn child. I'm not going to kill Mary. I'm going to do this quietly. We're not going to go to trial. We're going to divorce. People will still know. Our reputations are still shot. But at least it's going to save her and save the child. Now, it said, what it says next is after he had considered this, now, that word considered is an interesting Greek word. The word, the word is thymos, and that, that, Greek, that, that means considered or pondered, or it means began to be angry or frustrated. So we don't know which one it is. He might have just considered it, considered the two options, this is what he did. But it's very likely that he was frustrated, that he's looking at Mary going, What happened? What are you doing? We, we were setting up life together. And now you're going to do this? It's very likely that he was really frustrated at this point. But then here's what happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, now if you're at all like me, I mean, and maybe this is totally just me, but every time I read about angels, every time I do, I don't like that part of the Bible because it makes it sound fiction. Like I just picture this white lady and with wings, you know, and you just go, okay, that doesn't even sound real. But then I remind myself, wait a minute, but God's coming into this world um, through a virgin birth. 
and he's going to walk this earth. If God can do that and live and die and rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and we all have eternal life, I think he can give us a messenger. You know, and I have to remind myself, it's a, it's a messenger at the time. Even, if, even though I've never seen an angel, this was a messenger from God to Joseph. And the angel said this, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine him right there going, oh no, she was right. She, she, was, she was telling the truth. She will give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, when we read that part, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We're thinking Jesus, Savior, save him from their sins. But I think the angel also emphasized the first part of that sentence, that you are going to give him the name Jesus. You're going to give him the name Jesus. See, at the, in the culture at the time said that after eight days, after the child is born, the father, the father names the child. And when the father names the child, that's the father saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. And so he names the child. That was, that was, what, that was the custom at the time. You are my son. You are my daughter. And the angel says, you're going to name this child Jesus. And so the angel's saying, this will be your son. It will be your adopted son, but it's going to be your son with no compromise in that. Those of you that have adopted children or have been adopted, you know what I'm talking about far more than I do or anybody else does around here. You know that when you look at your children, you're going, that is my daughter. That is my son. And the angel was saying, you're going to name him. This will be your son. This will be your son. It's super important for us to grab hold of this, this point because God sees us this way. You know, Jesus is his only son, the Bible says. But he looks at all of us as sons and daughters. He has adopted us into his family and he's looking at us and he's saying, Bill, you are my son. No compromise, no well kind ofs. You're my son. And that's what the angel was saying to Joseph. You will be his dad. And so then, then this is what happened. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's hope has a name. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And so, so they forego the, the wedding feast, all that planning for the wedding feast. He, they look at each other and they say, we're going to do this. And so they didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born but the two of them decided we're going to face the ridicule, face what everybody else thought, and we're going to follow what the Lord had said. This is an unbelievable story of obedience and a story of compassion in, in, the, in this mixed up weird world that was happening at the time. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Now, what does that have to do with you and me today? Okay, so, so that's the history that we can get that adds some texture to the story. But what does that have to do with you and me today? Here's what I want to do. I want to go back to that moment where Joseph had that choice. See, he's right there. 
And the choice he, one choice he could have had was to follow even what he saw as scripture, the law, and he was someone that knew the law. And so he's going to follow it. He could have easily done that, saved his reputation and just followed through. He could have just done that with that kind of judgment, just go, let's just stone this person. Let's just finish this. He could have easily done that, but instead he went a different way. He erred on the side of grace. He erred on the side of grace in this moment where, where even scripture said it this way. He errs on the side of grace and he errs on the side of compassion. He errs on the side of mercy. That's what Joseph did in this moment. People, religious people could have come up to him and said, you're making the wrong decision. Right here, Deuteronomy, I think it was like 32. Right here, he erred on the side of grace. You guys, for me, growing up, when I went to the University of Washington, I went to a place called The Inn. And Denny Ryberg was our college director, our college pastor at the time. Denny later became the president of the largest high school ministry in the world. But before that, he was just the college pastor in Seattle, University of Washington. And Denny, to thousands of students over many years, would share the same message given 50 different times. Air on the side of grace. Air on the side of grace. When you have those moments, when you have that thought, when you have that, that issue that you're going, I, it's this issue that I'm going to stand on, err on the side of grace. When you have this person that's err on the side of grace. When you have this thing that you know you're right on, err on the side of grace. When you're not sure where to go, even biblically, err on the side of grace. He said it over and over and over again to us. And, 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 he, and he pointed out that the reason why is because Jesus did that with us. That Jesus looked at every single one of us and he said, I know, I see your doubts. I see your decisions that pull you further away from God. I see that you want to be God in your life and you don't want to surrender that to him. I see your apathy in it. I see that you, you intentionally turn away from God at times. I see all of that. I know what you deserve, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend grace instead. I'm going to err on the side of grace and compassion and mercy. I'm going to look at each one of you and say, I love you that much that I'm going to err on that side. And I know I could go a different way, but I'm not going to. And Denny shared that with us. And, and as a college student that struggled all the time and asked this Jackie Sylvie girl on the steps of Chi Omega all the time going, I don't understand this love that God has for me. I don't deserve it. And Jackie kept saying over, the, over and over again, I know you don't deserve it, but God still loves you anyway. She's repeating what Denny kept telling us, air on the side of grace. And then Denny would say, and you got to do the same with somebody else. Jesus has done that for you. That's what Jesus is doing. He's erring on the side of grace. And you see it throughout scripture after that. When you, when, you think about, when you think about Jesus and the woman at the well, when he walks up to that woman and it's a divorced woman, many times divorced, and it's a woman and it's from Samaria and the disciples are saying, you're not supposed to talk to that woman. It, it, lawfully, you're not supposed to talk to that woman. And Jesus is like, he turns around him and just go, air on the side of grace. And he walks up and spends some time with him. 
When you look at the lepers that we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, the 10 lepers that he walked up to, anytime he saw a leper colony, he walked up to the lepers and the guys are saying, you should not go that direction. You're going to become unclean. The Bible tells us you're going to become unclean. And he's going, there's going to be, I'm, I'm giving you a higher definition of justice than what you understand. We're going to err on the side of grace. You see how these people have been marginalized? I'm not going to marginalize them anymore. Err on the side of grace. He pressed that over and over again. You guys, this is a, something that he knew, Jesus knew, and Joseph knew from the Old Testament. There's, there's parts in the Old Testament that are called the suffering servant passages. There are these prophetic, prophetic words that shared about what was going to come. But while every, all the Jewish people thought it was going to be this conquering hero, this, they would ride on a horse and beat up the Romans, he's saying, no, it's going to come as a suffering servant. You're not going to like that, but he's going to come as a suffering servant. This is where we get that passage that we see at Easter a lot of times where it says, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that was made us whole. And by his bruises, we are healed. That's the suffering servant. In the midst of the suffering servant in Isaiah 42, listen to what this says. This is really powerful. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. A bruised reed he's not going to break. And a dimly burning wick he will not quench. When Jesus sees that woman at the well, and it's a bruised reed, bruised by her past, bruised by her decisions, bruised by what society has, bring, has brought, and, when the, and the oppression that they have put on her. And he's going, I'm not going to break that. In fact, I'm going to heal that. When he sees those lepers, he's going, bruised by a sickness bruised by a culture of people that just shun them, stay away from them, stay out of the camp, stay out of the city, stay out of the city gates, stay as far away from us as you can. I'm not going to break that. I'm going to heal. I'm going to walk with them. He's saying, I'm going to err on the side of grace. When it says the dimly lit lamp, that's, that's the, the dimly lit wick, that's, that's in one of those lamps. And what would happen is when the wick would burn down, it would become dimly lit. And it was dimly lit, it would fall off of the, the wick would fall off of the lamp and it would land, if it was on a table, it would burn the table, but there was always a glass, a, a, a thing of water under there to quench that, that, that wick. A dimly, dimly lit wick, he's not going to quench. I think about me in college and how dimly lit I felt. And he's going, man, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to love you. I'll light that fire in you. How many of us feel like we've, we have a dim wick right now? And you're almost worried what God would do. He's going, man, I'm going to err on the side of grace with you. See, that's what he was doing, and that's what he's asking us to do. I want you to think about this moment, that moment in Jesus' life where, where that woman was caught in adultery and, and those, those, those religious leaders were about to, they were picking up stones, following what they saw in Scripture, and they're going to stone her to death. Picture that. 
And when they're going to stone her to death, what happens in that moment? Here's this woman that's laying on the ground, uh, knowing she's going to be stoned to death for the adultery that was about to happen, knowing that. And Jesus comes up next to her and kneels down next to her, gets down on her level, extends dignity to her right there and extends to her, to, at her level. We don't know what he said in that moment. They don't say what exactly he said. But you guys, picture it. Couldn't he in that moment, couldn't he in that moment have gone, this is exactly what my mom faced. This is exactly what she faced. And my dad chose not to, to do that, said, not today. We're not going to stone her today. My dad erred on the side of grace. How many times when Jesus was five, did Joseph tell that story? And when Jesus was 10, did Joseph tell that story? Now we know Jesus is the son of God. And so he knows it, but it was reinforced through, through Joseph to say, today I'm going to err on the side of grace. And he, he stood up and he looked at all those guys that were holding those stones ready to throw them because it even said in scripture to throw them. And he said, I'm going to give you a higher level of justice right now. It's going to come from me and my heart. This is Jesus. And he said, you're going to err on the side of grace today. No stones are going to be thrown today. He looked at him, he said, drop them, unless you're someone that has not sinned, and then you can cast a stone. And the guys dropped their rocks and they went away because he said to them, I'm erring on the side of grace with you. Now I need you to with her. We will never err on the side of grace. We will choose our own personal protection and reputation and all of that. We will choose that unless we see that he's done that for you and me. And when we see it and know it and experience it, he erred on the side of grace with me. I have every right to be separated from God for eternity. I've done way too many things in my life and my decisions in my life and the things and the, and the doubts in my life. I got way too many of those things to, to ever get to now spend eternity with God and for Jesus to meet me on this earth. But he's there on the side of grace with me. How in the world can I not now err on the side of grace with somebody else? How can I not for what he's done with me? Who would have thought that this guy that we get mixed up with shepherds would give us a message through his decision about Mary? That Jesus would, that we were reinforced in Jesus' life that changes the world if we live into it. That's the extraordinary meeting us in the ordinary. Father, I pray that in our life and the decisions we make and the things that we have and the, and the uh, issues that we want to stand on, the stuff that we want to, that, 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 that we know we're right with, God, I pray that you would meet us in every single decision, every one of them. Meet us in those decisions. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what you've done for us. And Lord, help us, every one of us to err on the side of grace. I am so thankful for Denny Ryberg that pounded that into me and that shaped my theology, that shaped my approach, that just said, God, I want to in every way I can. When I, when I see someone that's been pressed to the edges, 
When I see someone that's marginalized, when I see somebody that somebody has an opinion on them, God, I, I pray that you would, you would continue to help me to use those words, err on the side of grace, as your son has done that for me. God, help us to, on earth, this thing. That's what it's gonna be like in heaven, and so we pray that it would be on this earth as well. It's in your name we pray, amen.